been to uh, find something today that we haven't haven't seen before and something that we can uh, carry on in our, in our daily life and uh, is planned for us. Uh, Lord, help us to be uh, your hands and feet here in Iowa. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. First Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 20 this morning. Um, Lord willing, we'll get all the way through First Corinthians chapter 14 today, and then uh, next week what we'll do is, is pause uh, in First Corinthians. First Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and 14 are some of the more debated and argued about passages um, in, in large chunks of Scripture because it deals with the gifts of the Spirit and gifts that, that we believe have ceased and others believe continue on. And so next week what we'll do is uh, we'll pause there, and I'm just going to do a sermon presenting the entire picture of what spiritual gifts are, what they aren't, how we understand them, how we don't understand them, um, if they've ceased, uh, which is what I believe uh, and what our church holds to, at least in practice. Nobody's running around acting like they don't. Um, and we'll go about that away. So just a heads up for next week. It'll be a fun one. Um, and not to brag, but just to put it in your ear, I went and preached a chapel service this week at a, a school in Big Spring. And according to the 12th graders, I, or not 12th graders, sorry, that's way too mature, 12-year-olds, I'm a good preacher. So just wanted you to know there's some 12-year-olds in Big Spring that Apparently, I impressed and didn't sleep through a sermon. Not saying anybody's name in specific, Keith. First Corinthians chapter 14, let's start in verse 20. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law. I will speak to this people by people of their tongue and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying at some and some unbeliever uh, or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and he, as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God really is among you. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, they are, to, uh, they are to be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and to speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should evaluate. But if someone has been, something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And all the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophet since God is not a God of disorder but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. The women should be silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home since it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 
or did God, uh, the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, but do not, uh, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, this text of Scripture, which has been interpreted uh, a multitude of different ways and has had lots of ink spilled on it and has been misused and abused in multiple directions and by multiple groups over the course of history, I pray, God, that you would help us to approach it with humility. Help us to approach this text uh, understanding, Father, that whatever we come to the text with, whatever we believe is secondary to what your text says. So I pray that you would help us in our hearts to submit to your word. I pray that you'd help us to rightly understand your word and to rightly apply your word. God, that's our goal. You have revealed yourself to us through your written word. Help us to be people of your word. Encourage our hearts where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, let's start back in chapter 20, and I'm going to read down to verse 25. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by lips of foreigners, and even then I will not list, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is not for believers, but for is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues, and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say, the try out of your mind? But if all are prophesying and some unbelievers or outsiders come in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secret uh, secrets of his heart will be revealed. As a result, he will fall down face he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God really is among you. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. When we come to this text of Scripture, Paul has said a lot of things in this book already. Um, and he's addressing a congregation that's largely been divisive, that's largely been ununified in important matters, right? there, Paul loves them, and it still makes me laugh. He calls them brothers and sisters. He cares for this group of people. He, he cherishes them, and he prays for them, and he helps plant this church, and he's guided them. But they also frustrate him, and we see that in the text. That there's this misunderstanding on things that are important, that they've overvalued some things, and they've undervalued other things. And so Paul, starting in verse uh, 12, has been walking through their misunderstanding of gifts. And largely their misunderstanding of gifts has been they took the gift of speaking in tongues, which is not gibberish. It is speaking other languages that you have not studied. That's the way it's interpreted in Acts chapter 2, and there's no indication in the Scripture that that interpretation should be taken differently in 1 Corinthians. So it's these different languages that people are speaking. And, and, and for whatever reason, the Corinthians decided that's the one to have. That's the one that they wanted. That's the one that they thought was the best. And those who could do that the best were elevated up high. And what Paul has been saying through all of this is there's one body, all sorts of different parts, 
but one body. And you didn't get your gift because God saw something worthy or great in you, so he gave you a better gift. God gives each person a gift to be used, or, or multiple gifts, to be used in the church to glorify him, to build up the body of Christ, to be edified for other people. So to say that you're better because you have a certain gift is to completely misunderstand what God is saying. In fact, that's why 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love passage, which we love, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. There's not envy. That's the one we read at weddings. It's the ones that gets quoted by the secular world. Is in the middle of this discussion on gifts. Because Paul is saying you can have all of these great things, and some may be better than others. You may feel like they're better, and they're going to help and do these various things. But if you have all of that stuff and you don't have love, you've missed the, the, the point completely of the gospel. And so in, starting in 14, Paul's laying out why prophecy is superior to tongues. What Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, and it largely carries over to the second half of 1 Corinthians 14, which is where we are today, is that prophecy is superior to tongues. One, because tongues are the favorite gift of the Corinthians, and Paul wanted them to understand, like, you need to humble yourself a little bit. But with tongues, you have to have an interpreter. It does no good. I could get up here, and I could speak in perfect Spanish. And if you don't understand Spanish, you're not edified. Impressed, but not edified. I can come up here and speak in Pig Latin. Really impress a few of you. But you don't grow in the Lord. Paul's point that we talked about and we'll reiterate here is growth in Christ is not always just this emotional experience that takes place within us. Sure, sometimes the Lord will use things like that and he will grow you with those emotions, he'll grow you with those feelings, but by and large, the way the Lord grows his people is through understanding of his word. So prophecy we also believe has ceased, is not preaching. Prophecy and preaching are two different things. With, with preaching, you open up a text of Scripture and teaching. You dig into the text of Scripture. You find all of the nuances. You parse everything out. You try to apply that text of Scripture to your context, where prophecy would be God giving the prophet a word, and then that prophet being the mouthpiece for God. That's what we see in the Old Testament. There's no indication that that would change in the New Testament for the prophets. And so Paul's saying you don't need an interpreter for prophecy, so it is superior to tongues. So now Paul continues on talking about tongues and prophecy here as he delves into church meetings. He tells them, brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking. But then he says, be infants in regard to evil, an adult in your thinking, or innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage that, that he, it, it says from the law, when the, the New Testament uses the word law, it's just referring to the Old Testament, because he quotes Isaiah 28, which is an interesting place for Paul to quote. In Isaiah 28, Isaiah is giving an oracle, and it is against the nation of Samaria before the exile, meaning it's the northern tribes of Israel. And Paul is speaking to Samaria, and he is saying, uh, uh, it's going to be bad for you. You're going to have all these people come, and they're going to take things over. And you have these false prophets in the nation of Israel who are ridiculing Isaiah's words. They're mocking him. And do you know what they were saying to mock Isaiah for this oracle? He sounds like a baby talking. Again, Paul said, be 
infants in regards to evil and adults in your thinking. And so Isaiah quips back and says, when the nation comes, it's going to exile you out. They will come and they will speak in different tongues. And those tongues will sound like babies talking to you because you will not understand them. And that is exactly what we see happening in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. They come in, they speak their language, and they exile Israel out. What an interesting passage for Paul to talk about when talking about spiritual gifts and using tongues in this way. So what Paul's saying is that tongues then don't necessarily lead unbelievers to repentance and faith. Instead, in the Old Testament, tongues were used as a sign of judgment. Prophecy is not this way. Prophecy in the Old Testament edifies the believer because of understanding, right? That's their, Paul's point in the first half of this chapter. And then prophecy also fosters a belief in the sense that it calls for faith in Jesus Christ in a way that's understandable. Tongues in the Old Testament was typically a punishment. You have these foreign nations, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, that come into the land of Israel, the land that God gave Abram. That God told him, this is your land and your ancestors, and this is what's going to be the kingdom that gives all of these promises, all these covenantal things to Abraham, and, and, and King David rules in the land, and, and they kick out all of the enemies. And we know all of the Old Testament stories, yet they disobeyed, they didn't believe God, and so now what we see are these foreigners who speak in different tongues coming in and casting out the Israelites. And then Paul does this really weird thing that has been, been argued so many different times for the rest of, of the chapter. It sounds like he's, he's saying conflicting things. Speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So Paul says in, in chapter 22, right? So, so hear it. Tongues are intended as a sign for unbelievers, and prophecy... For believers, listen to what he says in verse 23. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Paul just said tongues are for unbelievers. And now we see verse 23 where Paul says if you're speaking in tongues in your church and, uh, and unbelievers and people who are curious about Jesus come in and they see you speaking in tongues, they think you're out of your mind. We read Acts chapter 20, uh, Acts, Acts 2 in, in our Sunday school class today, and we were laughing, trying to explain to little kids what it meant when everybody looked at them and said, it sounds like you're drunk with wine instead of talking in different tongues. We had a conversation. Look what Paul says in verse 24, but if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. So Paul says, tongues are for unbelievers, prophecy is for believers. And then the illustration Paul uses is tongues confuses unbelievers, and prophecy is what unbelievers are saved by. It seems like he's saying the exact opposite things, and this has been debated all sorts of places. In fact, one guy, uh, uh, not any time, maybe around Keith's time, but it was like four or 500 years ago, moved this chunk of Scripture to a different passage because it made more sense for him to do that. There's no indication that that text should be moved. It's here. So Paul is telling us something, and we have to understand what he's saying. 
Remember, that quote is from Isaiah 28. Where all throughout history for the Israelites, speaking in tongues when other people come in is seen as a negative thing and as a punishment. And so then we see Paul saying, that makes sense, right? Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. That God speaks to his people with prophecy in their own language. And God spoke through unbelievers by using their tongues that it confused the Israelites. But now, in, in Corinth, that prophecy comes in not as a way to confuse unbelievers, but as a way that they might be saved. That, that God in his mercy and in his grace had used prophecy for the nation of Israel, and there's some instances outside of that. Think of Jonah. And now what Paul is seeing is God reaching out and saving Gentiles, not just Israelites. And so we see this text here. We can understand, like, one, I think it's interesting when we look at the gathered church in the early, like, New Testament period in Corinth, unbelievers are present. It tells us there's unbelievers, and in, 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 in the CSB it calls them outsiders. The outsiders would be people who are curious about Jesus, trying to learn more about who Jesus is, and so what do they do? They find a little house church and they go in. Here's what's crazy when we read, and, and we'll see this here. When the church gathers together, like say for a Sunday morning, the primary group that is meant to gather together and be uh, at the church is not unbelievers. The gathering of the saints is for believers. That's our primary goal together. You may sound foreign to you because there's a lot of churches that don't teach that. But when we gather together, the scripture is very clear. Our goal is to edify one another. It's the gathering of the saints, the gathering of Christians, people who believe in Jesus Christ, that we come together, that we worship the Lord together, that we sit under the gospel together, that we sit under the preaching of God together, that we sing congregational songs together, that we fellowship with one another together, that we're believers in those things, that we take the Lord's Supper together, that we bring people into the congregation through baptism together. That it's a church for believers. But what we have to be aware of is this does not mean we do not allow unbelievers to come into the service. In fact, we encourage them to come. That this is a place where you come to learn about Jesus. One of the great mistakes that Baptists have made historically throughout the last hundred years is we're really good at missions and we're really good at evangelism and we are absolutely terrible at discipleship. We will get people saved. We will baptize tens of thousands of people, but you will look at active churches, you will look at Christians, and you'll see the number doesn't carry over. That for us, it has become so much of a finish line. Just get you baptized, and then you're good to go. You can do whatever. We misunderstand what the scriptures say. That's not the end for a Christian. That's the beginning. It's the starting point of faith. And, and I like what, what Paul says when he talks about the prophetic word. Right, and again, I, I believe speaking in tongues has ceased. I believe prophecy has ceased. It hadn't for the Corinthians. 
This is one of the first letters that Paul wrote. They did not have the completed canon of Scripture yet. Paul hadn't even written some of the letters of Scripture yet. So there's certainly still some prophecy going on for their church, and there's certainly still some tongue, and we'll get into that next week. I won't dive into it all right now. But what we see Paul saying with prophecy here is it doesn't elevate the person who's speaking it. It elevates the Lord. That through the prophetic word, it's not some magic trick. It's not some magician going, is this your card? See, now you need to believe in Jesus. It's revealing things to people, and it's pointing them to the truth of the gospel. It reveals their heart. And the response of somebody who comes face to face with God is they worship God, and they proclaim that God is really among them. Verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are only two, or at most three, each in turn, and and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter... That person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if someone has uh, been, if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So when the church gathers, it is for the members' edification, for the believers' edification. And the way that Christians are edified or grown or mature is with instruction, not an emotional experience. We are very intentional with the way we sing. Have you ever noticed we don't turn the lights off unless it's the candlelit service? We leave them on. Very much pressed that this is not a show. Tanner is extremely talented, and everybody who helps us lead worship is extremely talented, but sometimes you run into issues where people are so talented at leading worship that you forget to worship with them, and you just are in awe of what they're doing. That's not a church service. It's not a concert venue. We are edified with instruction. This is the gauge of why we gather together. I think about this pretty frequently. But I I think about it in terms of I want our services when we gather together to be worth coming to. And what is the only thing I have that's of any value to you? A love for oatmeal cream pies. Some fly fishing advice that does not work. No. I have a love for the scriptures. I have a love for you. I have a love for the gospel. So why come? Because the gospel will be proclaimed and the word of God will be opened. So that when you miss, or if you miss, you miss gathering together, you miss one another, you miss the word being proclaimed and the gospel being said. So Paul walks through what a normal church service would look like. Did you catch what he says? When you come together, Each one has a hymn and a teaching and a revelation, another tongue or an interpretation, but everything is to be done for building up. That's the goal. Build up the body of Christ to glorify God and to make much of him. And so Paul says, if there's people who are speaking in tongues, one at a time. (laughs) 
go Google Pentecostal churches and see if that happens. It doesn't. It is not supposed to be just this chaos that's taking place across the congregation. It's not just some random words or some babblings that are taking place. It is a language that they know, something that has order and that has structure to it, because Paul says, go one at a time, and somebody needs to be able to interpret it. Why would Paul add that caveat to this? Because they do not have the written word of God completed in full yet. And so the way that God holds his church together through this is by making sure that what they teach is true, not false. And so there's standards that are put in place. God is a God of order and not chaos. Think of Genesis chapter 1. What do we see God doing? He creates everything, and in the midst of all of the creation, what we see is the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of the dark, and then God begins to make order out of what was chaos. Think of Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel where you have a group of people who are hard at work and who are unified and who are fighting together to try to get to God, which sounds like a good thing, but it's not. They were not trying to get to God to worship God and to praise God. They were trying to get to heaven by their own works, by their own merit, and by their own power. And so what does God do at the Tower of Babel? He comes down to see it, which is still one of my favorite things in all of Scripture. God has to come down to see this giant tower that they made. And God gives them different languages. And all of a sudden, we see this tension that rises up. In the Old Testament, different tongues is almost always seen as a negative thing. Have I said that in the sermon? I think I have. And so they scatter. It's a punishment. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and he descends on the apostles and, and the disciples in flaming tongues, what we see God doing is bringing order back out of the chaos. That he's doing this for edification. Acts 1.8 is the, the outline for all of Acts. Now, it will make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And if you follow the outline of the chapter of Acts, that's exactly what happens. The gospel spreads in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you have all of these people gathered together for these festivals and for these Passover type of things, right? These festivals that are taking place from all sorts of different nations that don't speak the same languages. The gospel comes to them through the tongues. They understand it in their own language. They understand it in their own dialect. And then the way that Rome tried to squelch this as they said fine just go home and what they unknowingly did was they sent missionaries back home so much so that we trace Paul's missionary journeys and he's going to these towns thinking I'm going to plant a church in this town and he gets there and what he finds are Christians and so he begins working and organizing and getting these churches put back together that's been the purpose of tongues from Acts chapter 2 all the way through here is for the spread of the gospel and it's done through edification and edification comes through instruction, and instruction must be understood not or it's not valuable. So then Paul moves on. Right, so if you're speaking in tongues, two or three, max, and somebody needs to be there to interpret it, right? You can't do it and then interpret it yourself and say, they're making sure that nobody's bringing a false prophecy here. And then he talks about prophecy, and he says the same thing. One at a time. 
There is order. And when he talks about people giving prophecy, did you catch he said, and others need to be evaluating your prophecy? In the Old Testament, to say that you had a word from God and then to have a false word, something that turned out to be true, didn't mean you made a mistake. It meant you were a false prophet, and the consequence of being a false prophet was death. In the New Testament, we see the church guarding itself from false prophets often and frequently, which is what Paul is saying to do here. Spontaneous messages, that's what prophecy is, that would come to a prophet, it would speak, and they would be uh, there was a need to be evaluated. And if it was wrong, you're a false prophet. That's what it was. So be careful if you say you have a word from God. Because God is a God of peace, not disorder. We see that in Genesis 1. You realize the reason we can do math, if you can do math, the reason we can have science, the reason we have reason, the reason we have logic, the reason anything in life makes sense is because God is a God of order, not of disorder. Virtually all of the first scientists and chemists were Christians because they thought, they read Genesis chapter 1 and said, God created these things in this certain way. We should be able to study these things and understand them better. And by understanding them better, we can understand God better. Now it's changed and it's shifted its meaning now. Science doesn't necessarily mean truth anymore. But that was the first part. We also see what Paul says here about a prophet's spirit are subject to the prophets. That's important. It means that your spiritual gifts do not cause you to go out of control. I've had friends who, who are continuationists who believe that they have felt the presence of God so much so that they had a seizure. And I, I got a picture of a guy who was having a seizure, but that completely contradicts what Paul is saying here. That means there's no people who are filled with the Spirit of God doing the groups of uncontrollable laughter, if you've seen that from groups, or the uncontrollable movements, or the uncontrollable speaking. Those are not from the God of the Bible. Prophetic spirits are subject to the prophets. And in fact, if you read the scripture, what those things more resemble than being filled with God is being filled with a demonic spirit more so than being filled with God. A spirit that controls you. I have a friend who says this, and it's something I think about uh, frequently. The Holy Spirit is a spirit, but he is not the only one. God has given us his word, and if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we can test these things and know what's true and what's false. There is an enemy, and he is the father of lies, and this is an area he has gained a bunch of ground recently. We must become more biblical so that we can stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Test things with the word of God to know if it's from God. Verse 34. The women should be silent in churches, for that they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for women to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? 
If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other tongues. But in everything, uh, everything is to be done decently and in order. So, let me ask you a question. Did Tanner cause every female in here to sin when he said, let's sing these songs? So what is Paul saying? Right, we saw in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul was talking about head coverings that he said there were women who would pray and who would prophesy. We see this uh, idea of female prophets taking place in a few s- instances of, of Scripture. Again, not preaching. That's a different thing than prophecy. But did we cause women to sin when I said, how are you this morning? And you said, good. Now, I'm supposed to speak in the church, so... No. What is Paul getting at? Probably what was happening in their church services and in their gatherings is these women had questions. And so what they would do is they would stop the service and ask their questions, whether it was for good reason or for bad reason, we're not told. But they would disrupt the service, that it would go from order to chaos. And God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. Now, let's be clear. It is okay to ask questions. It's not okay to cause a scene. And so what Paul gets at with this is it's really an an indictment on husbands. You're the spiritual leaders of your family, and that includes your wife. She has been given to you, and you have been given to her for mutual edification and for mutual sanctification. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul tells husbands it's your job to make sure that your wife is growing in Christ. That's your responsibility. So lead. If your wife has a question, be prepared to answer it. And if you don't know the answer, go and find the answer. Now, this can seem oppressive to some people, and it can make some people frustrated because they think that there's this equal rights and that men and women are exactly equal in everything, and we're not. We're equal in value, we're equal in worth, we're equal in dignity, but we are distinct in roles, and God has set this up to be this way. That God has made men to be the spiritual leaders of the family, and he has made the wives to be the helpmate. We see that in in Genesis chapter 2. In fact, if we just trace creation, and, and, and there's text about this all the time, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, and 1 Corinthians 14 here are all tying back to the created order that God has given before the fall. This is not a result of sin. This is how the way God has created things, that man was created first and that woman was created to be man's helpmate. It doesn't mean that if you're a female, you're insuperior to men. The Holy Spirit is called our helper. The one who needs help is weak. And so God looked at man and said, I need to give you a helpmate, somebody who can come alongside of you for his glory, who can help have dominion over the animals, who can spread the gospel and to spread God's name. And so he puts man and woman together. The instructions, the law that God gives to Adam, do not eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, comes before Eve is created. It's to Adam. It is his responsibility to teach his wife. We see that man names woman. Adam names Eve. We see that when the serpent comes, he subdues this male leadership by going to Eve and not to Adam. Yet when God comes to give out punishments, do you know who he talks to first? 
Adam. That he is responsible. What's also taking place here is, is they live in an honor and shame culture in, in, in Corinth. And it was shameful for women to be seen doing that at that time and at this place. And so Paul is saying, husbands, grow up. Learn the Bible. Lead your family. His, Paul's solution is, husbands, lead your wives. Now listen, where the standard fails, grace abounds. We live in a broken world that is marred with sin, and you and I are sinners in our hearts. And so what ends up happening is the standard that we know is set and is precedent in Scripture that husbands are leading their wives and leading their families in those spiritual aspects are often neglected. That one of the most common sins a man commits is passivity with his family. And that one of the common sins that a woman makes is trying to usurp the authority of her husband in the marriage. And we see that marriages break down and that deaths happen. And we see that husbands won't always lead like they're supposed to lead. Or when they do lead, they often lead into sin and not to the Lord. Or we see that wives don't follow their husbands like they're supposed to follow. Or if they do follow, they sometimes willingly follow off into sin and not to the Lord. Where the standard fails, grace abounds. We saw it when we walked through the the love passage. That love does not tolerate unrighteousness. That it stands with truth. So if you're in one of those situations where you don't have a marriage, you don't have a husband, you don't have those things that's leading, let me encourage you. Ask questions. Talk to your deacon. If you're a member here, you have a deacon. Congratulations. You can talk to me. I'm your pastor if you're a a member here. Now don't stand up in the middle of a sermon and just start shooting questions right now. That would be exactly what Paul's saying not to do. But ask. And lastly, I think it's interesting what we see Paul doing here. He recognizes the weight of his words. Did you catch that? Paul knows he's writing scripture. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize I wrote to you, what I wrote to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, brothers and sisters, eager to prophesy, and uh, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. Again, 1 Corinthians is one of the first letters that Paul writes. They do not have the canon of Scripture available to them. What they do have is one letter. And Paul says, this is God's command. Don't you ignore this. This is truth. If you ignore this, then the Lord will ignore you. This is God's word that he is penning. And so what Paul is clearly stating here is the supremacy of God's word over and above the other aspects. Now he does say here, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other tongues. We have the caveats that he gave earlier, right? Not everybody all at once, not those various different things. We believe they cease, and I'll get into that next week. But Paul clearly ends this by saying, but everything is to be done decently and in order, using Robert's Rules of Order, the latest version. No. What 
basically saying is when we gather together, we worship a God of order. We worship a God who grows his people through instruction. We worship a God who doesn't call us to sit there and be passive and get emotional and do all of these things that can make us feel good. But the ultimate way that we grow in the Lord is by learning more about God. And the way that we learn more about God is by reading what God has revealed of himself to us. By understanding this, by gathering together and hearing the word proclaimed. I'm not giving you ten points to be a better or whatever you want to be. We open up Corinthians, and we're reading Corinthians. And to be honest, there's a lot of stuff in Corinthians I wish we could skip. Nobody in their house, no married person in their house has the verse, all women should remain silent in churches that are not permitted to speak, hanging up on the wall. Hobby Lobby doesn't sell that. <laughs> I may have Googled it. They don't. There's other passages in here. 1 Corinthians 5 was not a fun one. Dealing with sexual immorality taking place in the church and a man being exalted in this while the world looking at it going, he's the one you're doing? Do you not know what he's doing? There's a lot of texts we come to that I'm like, man, I wish we could skip these. Genesis was a great book. I enjoyed going through it, and there was only about half the sermons. I was like, I really wish we could just jump this one and not do it. All of God's word is valuable for us even now. The fight that you and I must hold to and fight to, and I'll, I'll talk about this next week with continuationism versus cessationism, is there are ways in our lives that we subtly discredit God's word. We believe it's God's word. We believe it's inerrant. We believe it's infallible. We believe it is authoritative for our life. But what we struggle with is thinking that it is enough. We understand all of those things, but when hard times come, when we struggle, when things happen, what we tend to do is we take God's word and we say, this is good for certain things, but right now that's not what I need. What I need is something else. I love it. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's just not enough for me. And we do this in all sorts of different ways. Brothers and sisters, let us not be like that. Let us lean into God's word more and more, grow in the gospel more and more, and help each other know what God is teaching us by reading his word, even the parts that we don't necessarily like and recognize that it doesn't matter if we like it or not. It is God's word. It is enough for us. It is sufficient. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today, and I thank you for your word. God, I am so grateful that I don't have to get up and to preach and to apologize for it. But rather, God, I get up and I preach and I get to call all of us, myself including, to submit ourselves to your word. God, I pray that we would grow in knowledge of you. That when we gather together, it would be beneficial for us, God. Not just because it feels good to be together. Not just because there's a heater and outside it's freezing cold. Not just because we have good coffee or not just because we want our kids to grow up here, God. We gather together to learn about you, to be edified, to be matured in our faith. We're not any better than anybody else because we're here. God, help us to grow in you, to help others to be discipled and to be discipled ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us to love others enough to evangelize those that we need to evangelize. 
God, for the believers that are here, I pray that your word would saturate their hearts, that you would encourage them and that you would disciple them and you would help them, God, as they scatter and go about their way to be gospel lights where you've planted them. God, for those who are unbelievers who are here, I pray that you would help them to see we have nothing without you. We can speak perfectly. We can do all of the things, God, that, that seem impressive. We can, we can fake it and whatever, but God, without you, without your word, we're nothing. I pray that you would help them to see their sin, not to boast in it, but to repent of it and to turn to you in faith. Thank you for Jesus, for the finished work of the cross. It's in your name we pray.